0: Welcome to Asia Rising, where we discuss the news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. With me today is Professor Nick Bisley, Director of La Trobe Asia. Hello to you, Nick. Hi, Matt. So today we're going to be discussing the 70th anniversary of the end of World War II in Asia, which we're, we're coming up on quite fast here. It's either an anniversary or a commemoration, depending on your perspective. So there'll be different celebrations or commemorations, again, depending on your perspective, around the Asian region. In particular, the interactions and the stance between China and Japan, because it's also the end of the Japanese occupation of China. And so we're here to get your your predictions and your thoughts on what we're going to expect from how the countries are going to interact and how they're going to approach the event. We'll start with broadly first. How is the 70th anniversary viewed in Asia? Is it an anniversary? Is it a commemoration? is there a different word we should be using for it and in particular China and Japan and how does it differ from the rest of the world experience
1: perhaps start with the last one which is how does it differ from the rest of the world and particularly how is it different from Europe the asian experience of second world war is, is a much longer one particularly in china the manchurian incident which really kicked off japan's imperial ambitions in china and continental northeast asia date from the mid 1930s formal conflict you know open full-throated we're in war type conflict began in 1937 between china and japan and of course if you want to go a little further back japan's imperial activities you know going out taking land via force was late 19th century 1895 Mm. 1894 1895 1904 1905 where they picked up korea picked up taiwan along the way and 1945 marks not just the end of the second world war and the defeat of japan in that war but it also marks the end of japanese imperialism and as we now know although at the time it wasn't evident to marked the end of european imperialism in asia so when we do the, the 70th anniversary question in a lot of respect you've got a whole range of things that are coming together that from a western point of view you sometimes miss which is Yes, it's the defeat of Japan. Yes, it's the end of the hostilities. Yes, it's the end of that big, nasty war. But labelling it as World War II kind of undersells it. It does. Yeah. It, it, we, oddly, if, you can un- if World war, yeah. war II is underselling anything, it does. Because for these countries, it's the defeat not only of and, and the end of a big, nasty conflict. It's the end of decades, if not hundreds of years, of colonial domination, which is something in many ways to celebrate. So generally, you, you see this language largely of anniversary, but what occurs in japan is to sort of commemorate the war dead and to try to appease the souls of those who died and it's often very ambiguously spoken about about those who died not those we killed or the people we sent to die but those who died Mm. Um, and one can understand that that is a complex and very difficult set of experiences with which japan's grappling and politically as we'll discuss it's a fraught issue within
0: japan and the region as a whole and whereas china on the other hand has an actual victory to celebrate in their eyes and can have a much more bombastic kind of celebration. Absolutely. I mean, it's the view in China is actually much more similar in some respects
1: to the European commemorations. In Europe, for many years, the end of World War II was VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, you know, very unambiguous, we defeated the Germans. And the Chinese view is portrayed quite similarly as Victory over Japan Day. It's defeated the Japanese. It's also been coded for a long period of time as the beginning of communist China because the defeat of the Japanese was really a coalition, if you want to term it that, between the nationalist and communist forces and, and the allies, particularly the Americans. With the Japanese out of the way, as it were, China then reverted to what what had been doing prior to the Japanese arriving, which is civil contest between the nationalists and the communists for ultimate victory in terms of who's going to run China, Mm. which the communists then went on to win quite convincingly in 1949. So the defeat of the Japanese is for the communist party, the prelude to the victory of the communist party. And of course, with the communist party hitching its wagons so clearly to nationalism as its point of being and rationalizing the kind of government they've got victory over the Japanese is, is fundamentally important to the story that the Chinese Communist Party tells itself and the Chinese people about
0: what it means to be Chinese. So that's in uh, in terms of Japan and China, but does the rest of wider Asia have a stake in this celebration as well at all?
1: Absolutely. I mean, all of the countries that were occupied or colonised, either by the Japanese or by Europeans, have a clear stake in all of this. The interesting thing, of course, is that unlike Germany, where in Western Europe... Germany was physically removed from all the territory that it invaded back and back and back until they were basically in Berlin the defeat of Japan yes they were pushed off various islands in the South Pacific most famously pushed off Iwo Jima but they weren't pushed out of Korea the forces that were defeated in China surrendered in China the same was in Southeast Asia so there wasn't a, a kind of country-by-country country liberation in East Asia as there was in Western Europe and of course, we know that Japan ultimately surrendered on the back of horrific fire bombings of major cities, particularly Tokyo, and then the two atomic bombs being dropped on Hiroshima and then Nagasaki, so that you had a curious situation where Japan's defeated, but the forces are out there yeah, in the way that they weren't. So you end up with these curious stories of guys living in caves for 40 years on islands in the South Pacific, not knowing the war's over. That simply didn't occur in Western Europe because the German forces were either taken prisoner or killed or withdrew. And so what that meant for all of the countries of of the region, pretty much every country in East Asia at any rate, with the notable exception of Thailand, the defeat of the Japanese meant very profound things. And then, of course, as I said before, with that came very swiftly the defeat of European imperialism and the idea of empire as a, as a legitimate way of doing things. So... The only thing I'd add to that though is that the country that probably has the most complex relationship with Japan in terms of that war colonial experience is Korea. And really there's two things with Korea. One is Japan was probably about the worst it treated people, and it pretty nasty during a long period of its colonial adventures, it was about as nasty as it could be in Korea. And of course, for the Koreans, very shortly after the defeat of Japan, you had the division of the Korean peninsula into two careers. So if you ask a Korean about the end of the Second World War very quickly, one of the first things I'll say is it's not quite over yet.
0: Yeah, and that seems to be a stance that is quite common when you talk about this, no matter who you talk about, is that the war is not quite over yet, that there's elements of it that are still out there.
1: Yeah, and you've got, I mean, most obviously in the division of the Korean Peninsula, but you know, you could argue the creation of Taiwan, legacies of the Second World War, literally, physically, geopolitically. But then there's also that sense that from a political point of view, that tension, tension that exists. Mm. And really, it's a, the view is that Japan hasn't quite atoned for what it did. It hasn't quite squared up to the past. It hasn't quite looked history in the eye and said, we screwed up and we did the wrong thing and we are sorry. That's the sense. Now, whether that's right or not is a sort of slightly separate issue.
0: The Japanese would disagree with that, I'm sure. But uh, prior to Shinzo Abe becoming prime minister, the last commemoration address
1: apologised it for fairly well. Particularly if you talk to nationalist Japanese, I'll tell you there have been between 9 and 12 apologies mm. for the Second World War. Enormous reparations have been paid. There have been formal statements of acceptance and guilt for sex slavery, known as the comfort women. I mean, it's one of these weird euphemisms. When one talks about comfort women, they were sex slaves of the Japanese Imperial Army. Particularly in Japan, there have been formal statements by the cabinet on behalf of, you know, the entirety of the senior elements of the Japanese government. This is the nationalist line. How... What more do you want from us, is their kind of view.
0: I have heard some concern that when Shinzo Abe does his address coming soon, that he's going to take a different stance on it, or that he's going to have a a slightly different tone to his address. What's coming up on the the 15th of August uh, in Japan, and in many
1: parts of Asia, but particularly in Japan, you have the day that we celebrate the end of the Second World War, commemorate the war dead. In the past, it has been a day where, if you're a nationalist, if you're a really right-wing nationalist, we did no wrong, chest-beating stuff. If you're a politician looking to build political capital with the right in Japan, you go to Yasukuni Shrine, controversial shrine in Japan which in, in Tokyo. Shinzo Abe did a few which years ago. Abe has done, yeah. uh, and he he went on Boxing Day in 2013, which was much to the consternation of particularly the American government, to whom he had said he wouldn't go, as it's reported. But this year, Abe has signaled for, you know, at least since September last year, he put in place a committee to advise him about the address that he would give to mark the 70th anniversary. So this has been long signaled as a big, important statement about Japan, Japan's past, but more importantly, and from Abe's point of view, about Japan's future. Abe comes from a, a strand within the Japanese political establishment his grandfather was prime minister and a class a war criminal to boot but that's for another day but that strand of the conservative sort of political establishment in japan sees the past 70 years as one in which japan has paid its dues has demonstrated its credentials as a peace-loving nation it's not 1935 again and it's time to look forward it's time to stop looking back at world war ii And thinking about all the things that Japan did wrong. Yes, we did wrong things, but stop, you know, picking at the scab. Let's look forward. We're Mm. a democratic country, third biggest economy in the world. We are a country that upholds international rule of law. Big believers in the UN. They tick all the happy liberal boxes. And it's time to think about not only what has occurred, but what Japan can do in the future. And it's part of this bigger message that Abe's got about Japan feeling good about itself. I think not unreasonably, that there's a there's a strong tendency in the Japanese psyche to be introspective, to rake over the coals, to feel bad about yourself. Sorry, 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 sorry. That's, that's encouraging this tendency to not be able to be what Japan could be. And in some respects, the left critique is often quite crude and misses the complexity of it, which is Abe wants to be a militarist and tough and strong and hairy-chested. And it's actually less about that and much more about a sense of Japan achieving its potential by throwing off this tendency to, to flagellate itself about its past. But of course, this is grist in the mill of the Communist Party of China that says Japan is a nasty, horrible thing that came and gobbled us up in the past. It'll do it again, and is an apologist for it, and he is in no way recognising the sensitivities of the Chinese people. As that every time Abe takes any step in that direction, the Chinese Communist Party propaganda machine spins into overdrive and the Koreans are sort of stuck somewhere in the middle of all of this.
0: Can we talk for a while then about what Chinese celebrations are going to look like? Massively different to the stance that Japan is going to make, but at the same time much more politically problematic to engage with for lots of countries.
1: Yeah, it's interesting also that China's attitude to the end of the Second World War has become more bombastic. It has become more nationalistic in recent years. Um, It didn't used to be quite such a... Overtly anti Japanese exercise and Chinese nationalism, complete with
0: marching troops, marching
1: troops, and drones and things like that, which is what's going to happen. Plus, they've invited soldiers from allied forces, principally the Russians, to come and march. It's in September, so the Chinese commemorate it on the 3rd of September, and that's when the formal peace treaty between Japan and China was signed. We're going to see a huge military and militaristic celebration after the ceremony to mark the 60th anniversary of the creation of the PRC and the 50th it'll be the third biggest thing that's occurred in Tiananmen Square from a parade positive point of view it's a big deal they've invited i don't know the full list of the world leaders but they've certainly invited all of the major western allied leadership so far the only one who said he's going is putin uh, which itself is going to cause some problems really since the invasion of the Crimea Putin is not exactly flavor of the month. People don't want to line up and have their photos taken with him. The key thing is that for that celebration ceremony, call it what you will, is that it is designed for internal consumption. Sell the message of China as a great, strong, militarily capable nation that defeated Japan and that is great once again because of, guess what, the benign brilliance of the Communist Party of China. Mm. And so for Western leaders, particularly people like Obama, but also, you know, Australian leadership, David Cameron in the UK, you don't want to get caught up in a domestic imaging of of that kind. You don't want to get caught up in domestic propaganda where you're basically being propped to a pretty crude, jingoistic nationalism being sold. But at the
0: same time, it's smart politics to let China have their moment, have their celebration, and you want to be trade partners with them, and Mm. you definitely don't want to get their nose out of joint. Mm. So shouldn't our world leaders be engaging with it more to some extent than they are if you don't go what do you lose china's i think signaled that it would really like people
1: to come but equally it's not going to put a black mark in your file if you don't go you'll probably get some extra points if you do go hmm. in that sense if you're tony abbott and you're looking at this invitation which he will have gotten you anything am i going to go you're going to find he's got a cabinet meeting that day yeah, love to come. Yeah. We'll send the ambassador probably or do some kind of gesture. You might send the foreign minister. They'll find out what the others are doing and we'll kind of work out what the what the lowest ranked acceptable person is to go and that's what we'll send and that's entirely sensible. We've learned so many times that grandstanding on these things by countries like Australia is completely counterproductive. It doesn't get you anything. Only everyone loses if we do things like that. But it is, you know, it's a study in contrasts. In China, you've got a bombastic, celebratory, deeply nationalistic story being told, which is all around the defeat of Japan, a message that the Chinese government has been sending about Abe being this destabilising,
0: militaristic child of a war criminal who's out to do it again. Can we also talk about how else they're using the opportunity to really show off the military might? So they're using this situation to their advantage, and what they could be trying to communicate by doing something on that grander scale.
1: Yeah, I think it's largely baroque version of militarism. That's to say they're showing off the shiny visually impressive. They're not but they're not actually using this as a way of communicating indirectly about their military capacity.
0: No, spy Um, fighters can do that much better.
1: Yeah, and also where they have wanted to do that, they do that with aircraft carriers on the high seas. And yes, you know you're being watched and being spied on, and so that's not there. I think it is about sending that message internally and also externally about China as a power of the first rank. But of course it tells us a bit about how China thinks about itself. In some respects, informed by a 1955 view of what it means to be a great power, organized military march past of kit. Yeah. And that's one of the slightly disturbing things about it. The Russians have been doing this, and they did this in, in May. The Chinese are doing it. We are seeing this return to the stage in international politics of uh, from another era, but that idea that we must show our muscle, we must have muscle, we must be able to make clear to those who want to do us harm that we will
0: flex this muscle that we've got lots of. See? Get it? Get mm. it? You know, don't mess with us. It's interesting that you bring up the Russian celebrations because there's a lot of parallels there that you can draw between the two countries and the way that they celebrate it, particularly the guest list and how wide they cast the net for invitations. And all that went from world leaders in to the parade at least is Robert Mugabe and Xi Jinping. If more world leaders go to the Chinese one, That'd be sending a very different message on the way that two countries are perceived. Yeah, that's
1: that's true. And I think you will get more. I mean, I think you'll probably get the authoritarian fan club coming to China. You know, the Central Asian dictators will show up. Your African dictators will show up. You know, Mugabe will probably do a guest turn. Middle East, is sometimes hard to tell, but there plenty of good quality, high-end authoritarian dictators on that part of the world. I would be really astonished if we saw any of the Western leaders break ranks and go, the one question mark I've got is about Park and he, the Korean president. And my guess is she wouldn't go, but can never tell. She runs a good line in problematic relations with Japan, and that might be seen as a, f- a neat way of kind of getting at the Japanese. I'd be, look, I'm speculating a lot, and I doubt that they would do that, uh, particularly given America would be. Clearly in their ears saying that's all of the American allies are going to uh, attend yeah. at the, you know, Deputy Assistant Secretary for East Asian Boring Affairs level, you know, kind of.
0: America doesn't live right next door to them, though. No, indeed. And America is no longer
1: Korea's number one trading partner. China is. You
0: know, so there's differing
1: complexities with which these countries have got to grapple. So the thing then is, you know, if you're if you're running the Chinese propaganda mill, what do you do with this image? World powers come. Great. They're all here paying fealty to Xi Jinping. They don't come, you know everything we've told you about the West, don't want to keep us down, they don't trust us, they don't believe us, they don't believe when we say we're a peace loving nation. See, they didn't come. Mm. And so you, you kind of kind of have it both ways. What they are doing is really fundamentally for a domestic audience and is being framed domestically as a really key moment in that narrative that the party has been crafting about the march to greatness from the century of shame and humiliation when the outside world, the West and Japan came and basically carved us up, took advantage of us, treated us badly. We were victims. Communist Party is the only group that has been able to bring the country together again, make it whole, able to stand up in their language and to see off this ever happening again. And that's the message that this is, that's what this is really part of.
0: That's all the time we've got for today. Nick, thanks for your time. Pleasure. You've been listening to Asia Rising, if you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it on both iTunes and SoundCloud. You can follow Nick on Twitter. He's at Nick Bisley, And you can follow myself if you like. I'm at Nightlight Guy. Until next time, thanks for listening.